Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I served a mission for my church, so they sent my church sent me down to Peru for two years where I knocked doors and sold religion, basically, to people and helped them learn about the Bible and Jesus. And and when I came back, we're in school, and, and I, during the summers, I was I was selling pest control to pay for school. So I would knock doors all summer, get rejected a lot, sweat my butt off, you know, get, get thrown out of neighborhoods or sometimes chased out by people. And But, you know, the, it, it was great because I learned how to work hard and, and just be an honest, good, hardworking guy and made some great money. So finally, my, my buddy bugged me enough about flipping that... I bought my first flip my uh, junior year of, of college. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. Hey there, LabMate. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Our guest today is Sam Newell. Now, his passion lies in income-producing real estate. While attending BYU, studying construction management, Sam successfully started his own real estate flipping and long-term holding company. As an investor and licensed realtor, Sam has bought and sold and participated in over $100 million in real estate transactions over the last nine years. Now, started out, he flipped small homes to now developing well over $35 million in fourplex complexes and buying large apartment communities, Sam has a vast experience and expertise that has not only benefited his family and partners, but many more loyal customers, investors, clients. There's one thing that's really important to Sam, and that is integrity. That's the most important thing when working with clients and partnership. Now, on a personal note, Sam loves the outdoor and the beauty that Utah has to offer. Now, being a dad to Heidi and Liam, that's his highlight of his life. Lauren is his wife and his best friends. They enjoy traveling the world together. Sam, one thing he loves particularly is fly fishing. Okay, so let's talk business, right? Now, he currently resides in Lehigh, Utah, the Silicon Slopes. But, you know, Sam Newell is um, someone who I just met in another mastermind group. And I did not notice about him, but he holds a designation that not many realtors in the U.S. hold, and that is the CCIM designation, Certified Commercial Investment Members. It takes a lot of time and dedication to learn and to get that designation. In fact, only less than 10% of all the realtors in the U.S. has this designation. I think you will have a lot of fun listening to this episode, and you will also learn a lot from Sam. And now let me share with you how to get a hold of Sam because he is a busy, busy person. He works for Century 21 and to get to him, you can go to www.sam.yourutahagent.com or you can go to his personal website for investment, ipiacquisitions.com. You can also find him on Instagram at Sam Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L, Real Estate. And you can reach him at his phone, 801-995-2220. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with my good friend, Samuel Newell. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. And it's an honor today for me to have a special guest from Utah. Sam, it's an honor to have you here, man. Thank you for coming to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I'm, I'm excited to be on the show and, and excited to add value where I can. Awesome. And, and I understand you also have a new podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Oh, sure. Yeah, thank you. It's called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Just like you, I'm looking to educate people on what to do, what not to do, how to invest for high high amounts of cash flow, and, and just trying to add value to people and, and help them learn what to do and, and how to not get caught during the next recession, and, and even better, how to thrive and not just survive during the next recession. And that's the important point, because... Everyone is thinking that the next recession is right around the corner. Maybe it's in the next 12, 18, or 22 months. 
especially after the inverted yield curve. Yeah, inver- inverted yield curve. I mean, rates dropping, po- people talking about interest rates going to negative rates, which is just crazy, just crazy. So, you know, I, I know a big syndicator, he's got one and a half billion under management. He thinks the recession already started it that or started, but we just haven't started feeling it as much yet. You know, I am seeing the market soften in certain areas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see what's happening. And either way, you want to be ready for it. Be ready to take advantage of it and not get caught red-handed, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct, man. And so for our audience that don't know you, I, I want to bring up everyone's childhood to let them know who you are so that they know where you started and then where you are now. So Sam, what was it like growing up in your household? Let's say you were around eight or 10 years old. What was it like back then for you? Oh, geez, that's taking me way back. Well, I lived in North Salt Lake. So I grew up until I was 11 in North Salt Lake, Utah, and then Boise from then on um, until I went to college. But this is a great question because we were living in a 1950s style red brick duplex that my parents were renting while my dad was in graduate school. So he was going to the University of Utah to get his PhD in psychology. Um, I don't know how he and my mom did that with three little kids, but they did. They act, Well, actually, it didn't go super well. They ended up getting divorced a couple of years later. But, you know, he made it through school, got his PhD, and he's, he's a psychologist now. But, you know, that's what I remember is, is the landlords would come over once a year, give us a nice gift. You know, wherever we lived when I was a kid, my parents would manage the property to get discounted rent, which was smart. So when I was eight, nine years old, I would start mowing the lawn for this landlord who owned two or three duplexes right there in North Salt Lake. And and I don't know if I even got paid. I think it was just part of what I I was supposed to do to help my family get cheaper rent. And don't really remember other than it was a really steep hill. And and as an eight-year-old, it was tough mowing that lawn. So you got involved in multifamily even back then at 8 and 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, I remember my parents saying something like, oh man, like our landlord, he's making so much money. And as a young kid, I remember thinking, man, I got to make money when I'm older and have a better life for my own family because, you know, it was pretty rough for us. I mean, we didn't we didn't have a lot of money. Obviously, a college student with three little kids, it's, that's rough. So yeah, exposed early on and... and and I have seen both sides of the, the coin for sure. Yeah. And then fast forward to your teenager's years. Let's say you were, we were friends in, in high school. Who were you back then? Did you have this entrepreneurial drive and wanted to do something in real estate back then? You know, I, I hadn't really thought about real estate too much. Early on, I was laying carpet and and I, I was a four, almost a 4.0 student, had a 4.0, I think, until my senior year. But if we were friends, I was thinking about basketball and girls, and I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot. So I was all ready to submit my application when I was 18 to attend the Air Force Academy, fly F-16s and kill bad guys and, you know, get my Top Gun <laughs> Tom Cruise <laughs> on. And that's what I was going to do. You know, I was, I was trying to get a 4.0 and, and study hard to, to do that and hadn't really thought about investing. I just had thought about dropping bombs on on terrorists and um that was my goal in life but i also had a very salesy um i was a natural salesman so whenever we did a fundraiser for basketball i was the top guy that made the most sales and did the most door knocking when i was a kid i knocked doors selling snacks and trinkets and stuff to my neighbors to make money and so i've always been a, a good salesman and and just wanted to work hard and get stuff done. My best friend was an entrepreneur by spirit. And so if we fast forward to college, he said, Hey, you know, we ought to flip some homes. You know, these are two kids in college. We we have no money. I was again, not, I decided not to go to the air force Academy. I served a mission for my church. So they sent my church, sent me down to Peru for two years where I knocked doors and sold religion basically to people and help them learn about the Bible and Jesus. And, and when I came back, we're in school and, and I, during the summers I was, I was selling pest control to pay for school. So I would knock doors all summer, get rejected a lot, sweat my butt off, you know, get, get thrown out of neighborhoods or sometimes chased out by people. And, 
but you know that it, it was great because I learned how to work hard and and just be an honest, good, hardworking guy and made some great money. So finally, my my buddy bugged me enough about flipping that I bought my first flip my uh, junior year of of college and and made seventy thousand dollars on it and said, "Well, wait a second, my job offers are like." Fifty thousand, fifty-five thousand, sixty thousand. Why would I ever go work twelve months a year when I've already been making good money during the summers, making about forty thousand a summer, knocking doors, and then I can flip with that cash and make fifty, sixty, seventy thousand a flip? So I tried to finish school. I got within five classes, and by the time I was senior year, I was losing so much money by staying in school that I had to uh, just take a break. So 10 years later, I'm still taking a break. I'll eventually get my degree. <laughs> but my income's gone up by at least 50000 a year every year since then through flipping, through multifamily, through house hacking, all these different things I do. And I'm so grateful that my best friend, Tyler, told me to, you know, kind of convince me to, to get into flipping because he's always got these great ideas. And then I go out and do it with him and Sometimes we don't make money, but usually we do, and, and we have a lot of fun doing it. So your first flip was 10 years ago you started? Yeah, so 10 years ago I, I bought my first flip. We um, got a small inheritance from my wife's grandma. I married into money, by the way. I was grew up poor. I remember be, being on food stamps at some points. In high school, my mom remarried. We weren't poor, but compared to my wife's family, I sure was. I mean, I had no idea how much how much money I was marrying into. And, and so her grandpa, my wife's grandpa, made his millions upon millions through multifamily real estate in California in the oh, wow. 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So he was dead by then, but he had left his wife with 20, 30, 40 million. I don't really know how much. I just know she never ran out, that's for sure. <laughs> and she still had a number of the assets, sending her checks for 15000 a month, 10000 a month, 8000 a month. And she didn't visit these properties. She didn't see them. So she gave us a check. She said, hey, here's your inheritance. Go buy a house. I want you to go buy a good house for my granddaughter that you guys can live in for the next 30 years. And I was like, okay, sure. So I bought a disgusting flip and the whole family was furious with me. <laughs> you know, my <laughs> wife's parents were like, what the hell? What did this kid buy? I mean, I mean, they're like, you should have consulted with us. Yeah, I mean, it was a cat pee house. It was gross. It was in West Provo, Provo, Utah, 1990s build. So it wasn't that old, but the people before me had just trashed it. I mean, the carpets was, were still wet with urine from the animals that they didn't clean up after. And so our friends that helped us move in wouldn't even walk into the house. They were just unloading stuff into the garage for us, basically. <laughs> so we paid someone to get that carpet out of there and we bought it for 170 during the, that was in 2010 during the peak of the market it, it had sold for 330 so i figured oh, wow. i couldn't lose i i didn't that was my due diligence i said okay what did it sell for in 2007 okay 330 it's for sale for 170 and there's 15 other offers on it so i offered 180 appraised for 170 so i bought it for 170 ended up selling it for 242 of course and you live in it so you didn't have to pay capital gain yeah, right? we lived in it. We actually lived in it for two years while we were working on other deals. So yeah, no capital gains. That was nice. I did all the work myself, which I don't recommend <laughs> while I was in school. So I'm going to school for construction management. I'm uh, getting started in real estate. And in my all my spare time, I'm flipping this house, you know, doing all the work myself. So, you know, when you're 22 years old, 23 years old, however old I was, I guess you can do it all. I, I, my wife and I made a pact this year that after 10 years of flipping homes and house hacking, we will never, ever, ever do another one ever again. That's all big multifamily from here on out. Right. And, and now that you have made the switch to big multifamily, I noticed that you also have a prestigious designation for a realtor, not everyone has it. So CCIM, you're in the top 10% of realtor in the entire US. Oh yeah, thanks. I mean, you, you have to basically pass a course that's very intensive and understand investments, investing, selling commercial real estate. Um, so I, I wanted to educate myself. So if, if we 
rewind back to when I got into real estate, I was just selling homes and helping other flippers flip homes. I was only doing a couple transactions a year on my own because tra- sales was so good. You know, I'm a, a natural salesman, kind of. I'll work hard enough, I guess, for it to be natural. But um, so I was selling a bunch of homes and helping other people flip and. And I soon realized the funnest guys to work with were these guys buying duplexes and fourplexes and apartments. And so I decided to educate myself. And I'm very lucky to have been working for the right broker who understood that asset class and really understood how to buy duplexes and fourplexes for a profit and taught me about cap rates and and running the numbers. So I, I really ran with that. And, and when I say I'll never flip again, I just cashed a check for $100,000 for the last flip that we just sold. So by no means do I think it's a waste of time. It's just a lot of work and we'll never do it again because now we have the partners and the the ability to buy $20 million buildings, $30 million buildings, $50 million apartment complexes and rehab them. And we have the funds backing us and it's economies of scale. So it's not that I don't support flipping. I have good friends that still flip and make great money. Personally, I just don't want to deal with flips anymore. And I don't want to, if I'm going to work 60, 70 hours a week, which I do, I want that to be on multi-million dollar deals. And, um, you know, if we take it back to the CCIM topic, whatever you do, you have to get educated. You must educate yourself better than the next guy. Everyone knows what a cap rate is. Everyone wants to flip. So what makes me different is I'm better at running the numbers. I'm more conservative, more educated than the next guy. And and I think if you really want to do well in real estate, you can't just watch HGTV and Joanna Gaines and, and Chip and say, okay, well, I'm going to go buy a flip and do it, even though that's what I did. Once you get into multifamily, you really have to know your stuff and know what a stress test is. And, and you know, I've spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars other than the CCIM on education, mentorship and mastermind groups. Yeah, definitely. You are highly, highly qualified in this field just by having the CCIM. And then on top of that, you're in um, numbers of uh, masterminds that you have to qualify to get in. Not just anyone can just walk into your mastermind that you participate in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very lucky to be part of Rod Cleef's multifamily boardroom mastermind. And I think the last meeting we had, all of us together represented like over four or $5 billion worth of holdings. So that was fun to be listening to and learning from some of the top minds in the industry. Yeah, definitely. And now, Sam, the, I understand you, besides that conference that you just went to, you just came back from a trip for from uh, New Mexico for your a deal that you were looking at. Yeah, de- they, they, they call Albuquerque the Las Vegas of New Mexico. Not really. I don't think anybody calls it that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there is you know a what? Las Vegas, New Mexico, though. <laughs> I saw that. Actually, that's funny. My my wife asked, she's like, what does Las Vegas mean? And I'm like, well, it's the Vegas family. Las is the Vegas is the Vega family. So. Fun, fun thought, fun uh, little fun fact, fact there. It's just the Vegas. So, no Albuquerque. So, it's not sexy. It's not this Silicon Slopes, you know, Utah-like market. It's not a Boise where everyone in California with their tech company wants to move to. You know, Utah's got Adobe and Oracle and and Amazon and eBay. Literally, ev- Facebook. Every big tech company is setting up a headquarters. In Utah, a bunch of them are setting up in Boise. Those are our primary markets. But when it's hard to find a good deal in a Boise or a Utah or a Reno or a Dallas, Houston, these other markets that we're actively looking in and buying properties in, the Kansas cities, you have to go to a secondary market and tertiary markets. So we're looking in El Paso. We're looking in Roswell, New Mexico. We're looking in Albuquerque, which is a really stable market. So if you look at at why we would ever go to Albuquerque because it's not that cool of a place. It's just stable. So the population hasn't changed a ton in the last 30 years. It doesn't have a net migration in, small net migration out, but Intel just opened up shop again there. So we're going to have more people moving in. 
Um, it's just very, very stable. So we have two types of markets that we target. We target markets that have a good cash flow and will have really great, really, really great upside as far as increase in population, increase in jobs, and increase in equity. And then we have the Shreveport, Louisiana's. We have the Albuquerque's that just have a stable blue-collar, low-end, white-collar job force that haven't changed a lot in the last 30 years. And in those type of markets in the Midwest and and in these type of markets like Shreveport and, and Albuquerque, you can get really great cash flow. It's a long-term hold. It's not a sexy, big equity bump deal in three to five years. You're going to buy it and own it 10 to 15, 20 years, and it's going to net you 8 to 10% a, a year, every single year. And I'm all about get rich slow, but get rich for sure. So I, I don't need to swing for the fences. I don't need to go to Las Vegas and gamble. That's not me. That's that's not my business model. I make great money as a broker. I'm not trying to get rich off a couple deals. What I want is to, to get to $1 billion in assets owned through syndication, through my own purchases, and get rich for sure. But, you know, not get rich quick, get rich slow, but get, get rich for sure. And that's the type of Albu- market Albuquerque is, is not sexy, but stable and a great market to own a property in for the next 10 to 20 years. So you want to make little chunks of money, but you want to make it consistently in a lot of deals spread out in multiple markets. Absolutely. I will buy anywhere where there's a good job base, where there's not huge amounts of crime, which would actually probably get rid of Shreveport, but, um, (laughs) you know, anywhere where there's a good job base and it's a stable real estate market because, you know, if I can get an eight to 10% cash and cash return, do a little bit of rehab here or there, have a fantastic property manager. I don't care where the property is, you know, I'll, I'll buy in Canada, you know, I'll, I'll buy, uh, in New York, as long as it's a big enough deal that justifies us going out there, we'll buy it. So, Sam, define good job base for for you. What does it mean for you to have for a city to have good job base? Is that one industry, a multiple industry, a certain percentage of the industry that provided jobs in that market? That's a great question. You know, your tertiary markets are probably going to have one to two. You know, we were just looking at deals in Springfield, Missouri, and they have the universities and and some healthcare, and that's pretty much it. So a little bit of manufacturing. We get spoiled here in Utah where we have copper mines, we have huge amount of tech jobs, we have shipping jobs, we have financial jobs, ton of white collar, high-end financial jobs. So we have a little bit of everything. So we're very, very spoiled here in the Silicon Slopes of Utah. So when I'm looking at these other markets like Albuquerque, for example, they have government contracts, they have a military base. And they have some technology. And, you know, I, I never even look at construction. So one thing that you do want to look at, like a like a Las Vegas or maybe a, I don't know, a Phoenix or something, how much of the jobs are, are actually construction? If most of the job force is construction workers, that means it's a basically a one-horse town. And so, like, for instance, Boise in the last crash – they were mostly construction. They weren't a very very diversified workforce. There was huge growth because it's a nice place to live. It's a gorgeous place to live. People are so nice there, but it didn't have job diversification, and they got crushed. I had my best friend's dad lost his home and, and his construction company, and many people like that because, unlike Utah, they didn't have diversified employers they had a job base of construction workers and that was about it they had micron and hp but you know they weren't very big in those locations back then so boise figured out what utah did they said okay let's see what salt lake did and and salt lake for years and years and years have been giving tax benefits and they've been going out and courting these companies and that's why adobe just moved here and brought on 3000 employees here in utah that's why oracle just moved here and and companies like Micron and Boise are building another $200 million uh, facility because they're getting tax incentives. And uh, Utah's been good at it. And now Boise is, has learned how to 
entice a lot of those companies to move over there. So that would be probably on the extreme example of the best job diversification. You have the Dallas, the Houstons, the Salt Lakes, the Boise's. But on a low end, I, I don't want a one-horse town. I really don't. You have to stay away from a one-horse town because, you know, if someone comes in and buys that company and decides to consolidate, you're, you're in real trouble. You're going to have massive vacancy and no ability to exit that property. Just like in Detroit, and they're still trying to recover right now, you know, 10 years oh, yeah. after the crash. Yep. Detroit and then, you know, a bunch of cities in the Midwest, you know, um, Florida. So look at what happened in Florida. If you own single family in Florida during the crash, you probably lost your shorts because it was a bunch of second homes and construction jobs and industry that, that serviced people who were there with disposable income. As soon as the economy tanks, disposable income tightens up quite a bit. So if you're in the Phoenixes, the Las Vegas is the, the Florida's where you've got that older generation, the baby boomers coming there to buy their second homes and spend their retirement money. And all of a sudden that economy tightens up. Those are the first locations to struggle. And then they struggled the most during the recession. Okay. So now going back to your Albuquerque deal, what did you see in this market besides that stable in terms of population and strong job base? What was the crime? What was the crime rate like? What was the property like? The one that particularly the one that you tour? Yeah. So there's a part of Albuquerque you want to stay out of. And so what's nice is my business partner lives in Albuquerque. They went, his wife's a physician assistant and she went to school there. So he knows the areas, you know, if I didn't have a, a business partner there, I actually would have been a lot more hesitant to go to Albuquerque because it does have a little bit of a bad rap for crime. And when I went there, I realized, and just like Shreveport, there is crime. There's some serious crime areas where cops don't feel safe, let alone property managers trying to collect rent, <laughs> but they're, they're in specific areas. You know, and so the area we were looking at was Northeast Albuquerque. And I thought it was an awesome area. It was, it was lower end. It wasn't a class area. It was low end, B class, high end, C class, but I felt safe. I, it was a nice, nice rental type area. And I loved it. I would love to own assets there because of the jobs. It's a affordable place to live. People are nice. You have mountains around you, and it's just a cool area. And same thing in Shreveport. The the one we were looking at in Shreveport, it was the worst property in actually a really great area next to a mall, really nice little area. I think there was people dealing drugs there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I know. But when you're driving around the neighborhood, it didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like I was going to get mugged. Back when I was knocking doors for, for, to pay for school, I was out in Philly and a few times I almost got mugged or got chased out of a neighborhood by guys trying to mug me. So that's, that's where I don't want to buy. And so there's parts of Albuquerque you do need to stay away from. And I would say one of the most important things that we do is before we ever visit a location, before we ever make offers on a location, we team up with a property manager or a couple property managers, as well as commercial brokers that know the area well. And we ask them, where do you not want to go collect rent? Where would you not want to buy a property? And they'll tell you. They'll say, don't go to South Albuquerque below Central Road. You're going to die. You know, it's a war yeah. zone down there. You, you hear shots. You don't want to be hearing shots when you own a rental property. So um, we always do that. And, and you learn very quickly. All you have to do is make three or four or five calls and people tell you the same thing over and over. Stay away from the east side. Stay away from the... or you know, in Shreveport, stay away from the airport. Same thing with Albuquerque. The airport area probably isn't very good at all. So um, I like Shreveport, or Shreveport uh, sorry, I like Albuquerque. And uh, it's it's a great little market and it's stable and, and the de demographics and the population, it just hasn't changed a ton in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And that's the point that I wanted to ask you to on your tech on this, because I have listened to another member of your mastermind with Rock Cleave, um, actually two of them, Neil Bawa and uh, Adam Adams. And yeah. both of them hate markets that have no growth in population. Right. And you have a different tech on that. Why Why is that? So 
I can't speak for Neil. Neil actually loves Utah. He's building in Provo, Utah right now. Loves Utah. He already owns in Utah. Smart guy. But, I mean, the most basic example I have is if you own a property, you want to sell it for more. And it's hard to sell it for more than you buy it for if the location is not growing. So that's the most basic way I can put it is I'm with Neil and Adam on that. I would love to see massive population growth. And absolutely, if we're buying in a market with large population decline, then that would worry me. But if I look at a graph of, let's say, Shreveport, the population literally has not changed in 40 years. That's pretty darn stable. So I'm okay with that as long as I get an amazing deal on the property, as long as I'm getting at least a 10% cash and cash return, I'll buy in a tertiary market like that. The reason Neil and Adam want, want that population booming or at least increasing is because they want the 7 to 10%, I'm guessing, this is just me guessing, they want that cash and cash return. And in addition to that, they want a big equity bump. They want their investors to make a killing selling the property in two to five to 10 years. And while I would love that as well, it's really hard to find a good deal in Salt Lake City, Boise, Dallas, Houston. It's really hard. So I teach my investors and I, and I talk with them and I say, look, this isn't as sexy as a Dallas market, but if your goal is to get an amazing return of 15% ROI plus and an eight to 10% cash on cash, this will still do the trick we're just not swinging for the fences anymore. We're, we're hitting doubles. Yeah. Doubles win ball games as well. Right. And this goes back to what you said earlier. You want to make consistent income and cash flow year over year. And you're maybe you, you don't get that uh, forced appreciation like in other markets where population kept on growing. But in this market, at least you know you're going to hit that number year after year after year. Right. Right. Yeah. So stay away from markets that are declining. Absolutely. You know. The Detroit, you know, where people are leaving there year after year. It's growing now, but I think it's being forced by a couple billionaires. Other locations in the Midwest that just anytime there's a hiccup in the market, their population drops because people go looking for jobs somewhere else. Those are the markets that really scare me. The the Albuquerque's and the Shreveport's where they really haven't changed in the last 30 years. That gives me at least a, a feeling that I have a security blanket of, hey, during the worst last three recessions vacancy didn't really change population didn't really change we're probably good to go okay so while you were underwriting this deal in albuquerque what other metrics were you looking at when you did your underwriting roswell new mexico dallas salt lake boise shreveport so we're we're analyzing deals all over the place what I meant was like oh. the metrics that you use. Oh, the metrics. So, yeah, the metrics. So, for instance, you looking for a certain amount of cash flow every every year before tax, or you need to hit a certain cap rate. What are you looking for? Yeah. So, what are we looking for in these other markets? You know, we're we're looking for you know cap rates great if we can be a six cap at least. That's great. That's less important than an upside. So. Let's say it's a four cap. Well, we'll still look at a four cap if there's significant upside. So what I need to be able to do is offer at least an 8% return to my investors. So if we can come in and buy a property, do some capital expenditures of $5,000 to $8,000 a door, and increase the rents $100 to $200 a month, that that's a really, really good deal. That's a great value-add deal. And most of the time, that what we're being what we're being pitched is deals where there's maybe $25 a month in upside and you got to spend 5,000 a door. So that's not something we would do or, you know, or it's, it's a five cap and, and there's really no upside. That's, that's a really prop real problem is these sellers are selling for a price where basically you're buying it and just praying for appreciation because you're barely going to cash flow. That's not what we're looking for. We have to be able to get least that 8% cash on cash return on our money and and really be able to bump those rents up by quite a bit. Right. So hope is not a strategy. Buy and hope, that's not <laughs> a strategy in real estate investing. Hey, the, actually, I'm going to disagree with you. 
there's a bunch of people deploying that strategy right now. <laughs> so I would I would correct you and say it's not a good strategy. Uh, that's true, but you know I see I've seen a lot of people in SoCal. You know that's their strategy: just buy and hope. They're eating the Terrible. negative cash flow every month, hoping Terrible. that it will get yeah. up. Yep. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it. They'll get a bump, right? Right, and and it's been happening. It has been happening for the last you know five six years because they they have had a good run after the recession, but then when it hit again, it's they're gonna get wiped out again. Yeah, and and you know it's funny. I was just in California, and these people are just oh yeah, you know it's I'm gonna get this big equity bump, and and I'm gonna make all this money because I'm buying a house in San Jose, or I was just in Newport Beach, and. If you run the numbers, if you buy something that's going to give you an 8 to 10% cash and cash return every year, you know, let's say you buy that in Boise. Well, you know, Boise doesn't have the massive dips that California does. And by cash flowing every year and buying something, you're going to get a way better return than some hope for a huge equity gain in the future in California. So when we compare to apples to apples, people in California when I was teaching that seminar were like just blown away. They're like, oh, so buying this negative cash flow house in Cupertino for nine hundred thousand, hoping it goes up to one point eight million, isn't the best strategy. And and you're right, hope is is just killing these people with this negative cash flow and these high risk investments. Yeah, definitely. That's there's gotta be a better way and what you're doing educating investor I feel like that's really important because not everyone knows what they are doing. And if you're just buying and hoping that your house will double in value while you're eating the negative cash flow every month, you're going to get eaten alive when the economy crash and is coming. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of syndicators operating on hope. You know, these there's syndicators I'd never invest money with. They're telling you, telling their investors, you know, we're going to get a 10% cash on cash. We're going to put $2,000 in upgrades to each unit. And we're going to raise the rents by 200 a month. They're buying in the ghetto where average income is 20000 a year, where there's no way in heck they're going to be able to raise rents by 200 a month. So they're just, they've got a good idea. They're on the right track. They haven't fully vetted their business model, though. They haven't stress tested. They haven't done the right research. So in every as- aspect of real estate right now, there are a lot of people not doing their homework and just operating on hopes and dreams that they'll hit it big. Now, talking about stress tests, do you have a particular software that you use to run simulation like, or anything yeah. like that? Yeah. So on smaller deals, there's a software. Let me pull it up. It's called Property Evaluator, retools.com. So it's only available on Apple. So for small, smaller deals, it's a really powerful little tool. It's 40 bucks. I use it for all my townhomes, duplexes, fourplexes, that size of stuff. And for my larger things, I just have a, an analyzer in Excel. We get, you know, for our 100, 200, 400 deal, uh, deal size or doors. What am I trying to say? 200 doors for, for a deal that big. We're using Excel and, and a very intense analyzer that's, that's linked. It's a custom um, Excel and and there's there's you know Michael Blanc is a really good one. David Topin has a really good one. So I would buy theirs if I was new in this. And I actually did buy both of theirs, and then we created our own um, based on what we liked from theirs. So, but yeah, we're analyzing how much we can raise rents. We're doing the rent comps. We're doing um, average income comps. I mean, we're literally throwing everything into our analyzer to make sure that we're not being too optimistic. Okay, so it's, I mean, it seems like you're doing a lot of projects right now. You have deals all over that you're underwriting, and with the help of software, it definitely lightened your load a little bit. But are there times that you feel unfocused, and what do you do at, at that point? You know, I just hired an assistant. I'm, I'm actually texting her as we speak because she has some questions for me, but I've been working crazy, crazy hours and what I've always tried to do is either hire a really good assistant or if I really need a partner, I partner with someone It's where it's a strategic partnership where I'm going to add a huge amount of value to them and they're going to add huge, huge amounts of value to me. So my business partner on underwriting all of these deals, 
is, his name's Lyndon, and he's a buddy from college. He's a CPA. That's what he went to college for. Really smart guy, successful business owner. Very lucky to have him as a partner. And he's really good at analyzing deals. I mean, I'm good. I'm nerdy. This is my kind of joke, and maybe he doesn't like it, but I'm kind of nerdy. Like, I love looking at the numbers and analyzing and he's just a little bit more nerdy than me. You know, he's just a little, a little <laughs> bit better at, at running those numbers and analyzing these deals. So right now what we do is he's really doing the full analysis. And because I have 10 years more experience than him really in buying a multifamily, then he brings me in and then we really go into depth over the comps, everything that he's thrown in and and done and thrown into the analyzer to verify that it's, it's accurate and, and that he hasn't missed anything. So... You know, on that side of things, you know, when I'm struggling to keep up, I always just bring in a, a good partner. So on the money raising side and and the experience side, we brought in a partner who is uh, in his 50s, uh, very, very wealthy individual from San Francisco, good, good friend of mine who owns over 300 doors paid off, almost all the way paid off. And so he's our guy that's going to help us vet the deals and also raise money. And he'll be our partner in all these deals. And so we realized we really wanted someone older than us that's been through the recession, that's that's done multifamily for a number of years. And so strategically, we kind of thought who the best person would be. And we found Michael, his name's Michael Young, to be, you know, a great third, you know, we'll be the three amigos buying multifamily together. So a really good third partner for us. You, then you just need a quarterback throwing to the three amigos. There you go. There you go. Yeah, we just need someone to throw us all these deals. So now we're literally expanding our network across the nation through the podcast, through the top realtor groups that we're in, and we just need deals. We need people to send us their deals to analyze, and and then uh, we'll cut them in on the deal and if we buy it. Yeah, so you, you need someone to give you deal flow all across the nation, basically. Yeah, and, and um, so we've been educating others, and, and that's... You know, it's a win-win scenario. If you help others, you know, they'll bring you deals. So we've been doing that for a number of people where we educate them, teach them how we underwrite, and they go out and look at deals and bring it to us if they think it's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Now, Sam, what have been the most profound lesson, uh, lessons you have learned in your real estate investing journey? You know, do the right thing. I've got a, a good story for you. So when my daughter was... Which, which she is probably six six months to eight months old. She we she had just been diagnosed with asthma and she had RSV and pneumonia. She was very 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 sick. My wife had postpartum depression, struggling with that, and it, it was a tough time in our lives. Very very tough. I was not making a ton of money in real estate. I was pushing really hard, working a lot of hours and. I remember I took this listing and I was so excited. It was a half million dollar listing and and the realtor before me had done a terrible job and this guy just needed his house sold and and so I, I did all the marketing, I put it up for sale and I just I was crushing it, getting showings and I found this buyer through my marketing and I was at the hospital with my daughter and he said, Hey, can you show me the house? I said, You know what, my daughter's sick, I'm at the hospital. I will call the owner to let you in. He said, Okay, perfect. And so he saw it, he loved it, wanted to make an offer. Well, while he was at the house, they realized that they knew each other, the buyer and the seller. And while I had spent all this time and money getting professional photos, marketing the property, I found the buyer through, I think it was through door knocking or, or cold calling or wh however I found it. They decided, you know what, we're both, we both have a lot of money. If we need to, we can defend ourselves from a lawsuit. Let's just cut Sam out of the deal. So they called me and said, Hey, we're old, we're old friends. Uh, you're not going to get a commission on this. I said, oh. what do you mean? And, and the owner said, look, I have a lawyer on, on my payroll for a million dollars a year and I will bleed you dry. You're not getting a commission on this. You're done and come pick up your sign and, and get out of here and take your lockbox off. So <laughs> I was devastated because I, you know, I'd spent a lot of time and money getting that thing going and marketing it and, and my daughter's in the hospital. We really, really needed the money. And this guy's a multimillionaire. I mean, he had, he had about 30 Rolexes. He had like 10 uh, Audi 
those nice Audis and Porsches and I think it was R- Audi R8s. And I mean, he had, he had just gotten done showing me his, his garage with like 30 cars in it. And, and for, I think it was like a $40,000 commission. He was willing to not do the right thing and just cut me out and said to me over the phone, you can sue me if you want, if you want for the commission, but I'll bleed you dry. And so that was, that was really, really hard for me. And he didn't know that my daughter was sick. He didn't know that we really needed the money that my daughter was in the ICU with her lungs being pumped. And my wife was a mess and and I was a mess. That was rough. And I had one more seller like that, that kind of did a similar thing to me a couple years later and said, Hey, you're not getting a commission. I, I'm not going to pay you money. I can't afford to. And I said, you know, I've done the work like that. That doesn't make any sense. I've done the work. And, and he ended up not paying me and, and I didn't have money to take him to court. So I didn't get paid. So it's, it's really interesting how people will justify a way to not pay you or they'll justify a way to not do the right thing. And it can really, really hurt others. And, and I have lots of other examples of how this property manager, we just, had on with some of my investors was doing a terrible job cost me and on my triplex and my other investors and their fourplexes thousands of dollars because they wanted to save money on marketing and and not hiring not doing the right thing so i've seen that over and over again i was listening to a podcast i think with tim brat tim brats the other day and someone in his podcast said you know what if you if you're professional you're smart you're educated and if you just do the right thing, you'll eventually, people will hear about it. Because there's so many people not doing the right thing, so many people getting burned, that if you have a, a spotless reputation where you're never crossing the line, you're just doing the right thing, you'll do well. And so that's been my goal always, but you know those, those stories reinforce that where we struggled because people just didn't want to do the right thing. They wanted to save some money. So those were great examples in my life why I'm so committed to doing the right thing because you never know how bad it's hurting someone else and and whether it hurts them a lot or a little, you should just, just do the right thing. Yeah, Sam, thank you so much for sharing that, man. I, You know, people, I only like to deal with people who have high integrity and from what you just told me, you are one of those people. So I really, really appreciate you sharing that story with with me with the audience because it's a it's a beautiful business and there are plenty of money going around we don't need to cheat people out of their worth you know right. to to save a few dollars here and there it's not worth it it's not some people think it is they they really like money or maybe they're lazy that's usually what it is people they're obsessed with money or they don't like other people to make money. I don't know, but I'd rather know that I'm honest and, and never have to question that. And so there's listings I'm turning down right now. There's projects I've passed up on because I just, I couldn't be honest. And, you know, here's a crazy example. There's a developer right now pitching deals that I know of. I'm not going to say their name, but they're actively selling a project where their pro forma is basically just a made up lie. The taxes on the property are wrong. They're low by about half. So these people are buying these multi-units from them, expecting their expenses to come in at X. And next year when taxes get levied, their taxes are going to be about six to $7,000 higher than what they were on the pro forma. And that takes you from what they're advertising is like a 6.8 cap down to like a 5.4 cap. Like these people are going to be barely breaking even where they thought they were going to cash flow about a thousand a month. That's the kind of crap that just, it just infuriates me. And, and, you know, I, I backed out of a big development deal that would have made me a quarter million dollars last year because the numbers were just off. The, the developer was giving me weird answers. The numbers kept changing. I had already sold half the project. Luckily, none of my clients' money was non-refundable at that point. So I told them all to cancel. You know, I could have probably just covered it up and, and fluffed the pro forma a little bit and gotten paid. But, um, it wasn't worth it to me, but there's plenty of realtors and investors and syndicators that they would rather just fluff that pro forma and get the paycheck. So I'm very sensitive to that. Yeah, definitely. And that's why if you are going to get involved in 
any kind of real estate investment, you need to first educate yourself. Or you get involved with someone like Sam, who knows what he's doing and who has high integrity, who's willing to walk away from deals just because he doesn't feel like it's right for you. You know, it's hard to have to find people like this in in this industry. In the world, man, any industry across the world. I mean, you're right. It's it's hard to find people that put integrity first, and everyone says it. Here's the thing: everyone says they have integrity. Until there's a lot of money on the line. Once there's a lot of money on the line, you've got that good angel, bad angel on your shoulders talking in your ear, and and you start thinking about how you can spend the money, how you're in debt, or you want to buy that new house, that new car. And I've been through it myself. I've had to make those decisions, and it's hard, man. When there's a lot of money on the line, it, it's hard to stick, keep your feet planted on the ground, and remember that. You know, it's, there's a lot more than money in life, so I, I get it. I get why people make those bad choices, but it's definitely uh, interesting. As soon as money's involved, people that said they're, you know, they have integrity, everything changes. Absolutely, man. Sam, thank you so much for coming into the show, man. You are, you have been awesome. I truly enjoy our conversation today, and I, you know, you have been. Truly, an inspiration, and you have dropped some good knowledge bomb for all of us here to listen and learn from. Well, thank you for having me, man. I think you're a great dude, and and just doing awesome stuff. I'm, I've been listening, you know, to a bunch of different podcasts. I'm excited to continue listening to yours and and hear where yours goes. And I think you're adding a ton of value. So thanks for having me on. Love the episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast? Share the show with all your friends. Subscribe and give the show a five stars rating on iTunes. Until next time, have an awesome work week.